Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok, and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. It is an investigation that started in the early days of Fonnie Willis's tenure as district attorney. And here we are two and a half years later, and the eyes of the world are on Fulton County and this little district attorney's office in Atlanta is taking on the former president and some of his closest allies. That is Anna Bauer, Lawfare's Fulton County correspondent. She's a native Georgian, and she's been covering the Trump indictments from Washington and now right to her home state. We're also joined by Anthony Michael Kreis, a law professor at Georgia State University, who also knows the Fulton County courts inside and out. And I'm Brian Stelter. Welcome to Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Today, as you can tell, we're going inside the latest Trump indictment. Yes, Donald Trump's fourth indictment in as many months. And since this one is in Georgia, we've brought on two experts who are in the state to explain it to us. So, Anthony, you happened to start teaching your fall semester classes uh, the same week this was all going down? Yeah, so it's been a somewhat surreal experience to go from the Fulton County Courthouse and getting the indictment in real time to uh, a few hours later walking into the classroom and having to teach constitutional law. (laughs) So do you feel like you're living history in real time right now? Yeah, I, I think so. I, I you know, I, I remember watching the events in December 2020 unfold in real time. I watched the John Eastman Rudy Giuliani testimony before the Georgia General Assembly. I, I was talking to people about it, um, you know, as it was unfolding and I'm thinking to myself, there's something off here, right? There's really just something afoot. And then on January 6th, really everything really came together. I mean, I thought the Brad Raffensperger call when it came out a few days before that or the day before that was bad. And so, yeah, I I certainly think that we're witnessing history, we're living through history, and I think the entire country is going through a very important test for the future of democracy and the future of our our political culture. It is a trial for the country. Yeah, you mentioned the call to Georgia's Secretary of State. Let's go ahead and play part of what Trump said on that call. You know what they did and you're not reporting it. That's a, you know, that's a criminal, that's a criminal offense. And, and, you know, you can't let that happen. That's, that's a big risk to you and to Ryan, your lawyers. That's a big risk. But they are shredding ballots, in my opinion, based on what I've heard. And they are removing machinery uh, and they're moving it as fast as they can. 
both of which are criminal fines, and you can't let it happen, and you are letting it happen. You know, I mean, I'm notifying you that you're letting it happen. So, look, all I want to do is this. I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes. When that audio was first revealed, it was shocking. Now, years later, how important was that call to this wide-ranging case that's been established? Well, it was incredibly important because it's what initiated the investigation it, to start with. Fonnie Willis was still unpacking the boxes in the district attorney's office because she had just been elected. The Raffensberger call happened. She reportedly said, I prayed that Raffensperger was not in Fulton County at the time of that call. That's interesting that she didn't want to have to pursue this. She said she was reluctant to take on this investigation. You know, again, she's a new district attorney. Her office had been kind of embroiled in some scandals before she was elected with the prior district attorney's office. Fulton County was going through a big case backlog. And so she ended up taking on this huge case. It started out with the Raffensperger call, but it then kind of, you know, expanded and became this really sprawling investigation. Uh, It turned into impaneling a special purpose grand jury that she used to investigate for about seven to eight months. It started involving other aspects of the alleged conspiracy. It involved the breach of voting systems in Coffee County, intimidation efforts against Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss. So it turned into something, but it all went back to that Raffensperger call. Mm. And that call forms a key part of the indictment. I appreciate the way you're explaining that because I feel like for the average news consumer, right, some of whom, you know, are listeners of this podcast, others might think of themselves more as as news junkies. But if you're a if you're a casual news consumer and you hear about this sweeping RICO indictment all of a sudden, and you're trying to figure out where is Fulton County is, what is racketeering, it can sound like it, it came all of a sudden. But this had been, you know, in the works for many months. You, you knew it by reading the legal tea leaves, right? And looking at the documents on the on the what is it on the docket? Am I getting the language right here? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. It's like an iceberg, like a little bit of the icebergs above the surface, but most is underneath. Right. And I think on the other side of things, people have been questioning why she took so long to investigate this. And and I think it's really important to say that some of these facts that are in the indictment did not come out until the January 6th committee started releasing documents and having public testimony last summer. And then it wasn't until August or September through a civil litigation suit that the Coffee County events involving breaches of voting systems, th- that became public. And so So there were multiple kind of new developments that started coming out that they added to the investigation. And that just takes time, especially when you're building a huge conspiracy case like this. Just one more question for you on that, because you mentioned Coffee County. You have a new piece out on Lawfare.com about this. I don't know if average news consumers understand the breach that happened here. This was not just words in the wake of the election loss. It was actions. Tell us more about that. Right. So to explain what happened in Coffee County, there's a, a group of individuals who were who live in Coffee County who went into the elections office. They were aided by an, a, an election supervisor and, and a member of the board. This is really sensitive software and data that was copied and then, you know, distributed to multiple people in multiple states. It's the kind of thing that you do not want out there so that people can examine this software and then test it 
market for how to attack it. It makes our election systems more vulnerable to those kinds of attacks, which is why we keep our election systems more locked down than than what occurred here. But as my piece explains, it's easy to look at these people as just, you know, rogue elections officials or GOP operatives who who went in and did this. But when you when you actually look at the facts and, and look at all this deposition testimony and other filings, you see there's connections to people like Sidney Powell. There's connections to Rudy Giuliani. There's connections to Jeff Clark. The indictment mentioned that one of these people had over an hour long phone call with Jeff Clark, who was at the time one of Trump's key confidants. So it really is kind of reminiscent of Watergate almost, how something that looks Mm. a little bit uh, removed from the president's inner circle as these things were coming out in drips and drops through the news and through litigation, it all of a sudden started to look like something that had broader implications and, and a broader connection to the president's top operatives. Right. And thinking about it as, you know, with my media reporting background, this is one of those stories that becomes bigger and bigger and bigger as time goes by. You know, so sometimes you, know, you, you get criticism of the media saying, why, why are you still focusing on this? Why are you still covering this? Well, it's because the story is getting bigger. We're learning more about it. There's so much more we didn't know in 2020 when it was happening that we've only learned years later. Anthony, the indictment lists eight different ways that Trump and the other defendants allegedly, you know, tried to obstruct the election. We're going through some of them right here, you know, harassing election workers, engaging in a cover-up, creating that fake pro-Trump slate for the Electoral College. Did the indictment, when it came out Monday night, look basically like what you expected? Were there surprises in the way this is being built? So I think the indictment looked almost exactly as I expected it, at least in structure. What I was somewhat taken aback by, I think, might have been the way in which the conspiracy or the racketeering entity was constructed. I, for one, always thought of it as just a very Georgia-centric racketeering entity that had a national flavor to it, a national component to it. But I didn't think Fonnie Willis was essentially going to say the racketeering entity was a national enterprise Mm. with the sole aim of overthrowing an election that came into Georgia and decided to write metal in Georgia elections with the unlawful attempt to to change the outcome. And so mm. that was somewhat surprising to me. And I and I also ultimately there's a, a narrative here that I think is really well established that Fonnie Willis is is a telling the American people in the world, frankly, and and her own constituency here in Fulton County, that there were that these people were attacking our democracy. And I think we all knew that, right? There's no surprises in that sense, but that there's a really clear narrative of how determined these individuals were to do whatever they could to hold on to power for Donald Trump mm. and how deeply committed they were to undoing democracy here in Georgia in service of Donald Trump. Mm. Anna, you were also in Washington for the January 6th uh, federal indictment uh, earlier this summer. There's been a lot said, you know, across cable and, and everywhere about the similarities between these two indictments. It, is that accurate? And then also, what are the differences? 
Yeah. So, I I mean, there are a lot of similarities in that I think that the underlying core of the two indictments are very similar, Uh, you know, focusing on things like the fake electors plot. The the individuals in the federal indictment who were the unindicted co-conspirators, there's a lot of overlap with those people who are now indicted in Fulton County. That's folks like John Eastman and Jeff Clark and Sidney Powell and Rudy Giuliani. Um, so we have that, that overlap at its core, but it's really important to say that there are things here that the district attorney has investigated that are not in the federal indictment. So mm. that's things like the Coffee County breach, which we've looked in to see if, if it looks like the special counsel is investigating that. And it seems like the answer is no. Um, we also know that in this indictment in Fulton County, it involves the horrible harassment and intimidation of Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss. And those are things that are really important. And Georgia events that the district attorney was able to investigate and now have ended up in this indictment. So, you know, we do have some similarities, but I think there are really important differences. And, and you know, I think Anthony has talked a lot about this and, and what it means to have those differences. So maybe he has some thoughts as well. Well, I think the major thing for me is that Jack Smith's case, in my view, is really meant to be one geared towards being expeditious. And I think that that's why, of course, it's so narrowly focused just on Donald Trump, and it's why he's chosen that particular tactic. To me, and I think that that there is something really significant about Jack Smith saying very clearly in his indictment, that Donald Trump and these co-conspirators created a conspiracy for the express attempt to deprive people of their rights. It's very blunt. You can't conspire to injure people's constitutional rights. Mm. And so to me, that just speaks to the heart of the matter. And I think that one other thing that's important there, too, is that the violence on January 6th was a direct consequence of that conspiracy. And I think that's just really important for the narrative that understanding what happened, why things happened, mm. why it matters in history, right? That that Donald Trump allegedly, I think also, um, right, conspired to, to keep people's votes from being counted and people engaged in violence on his behalf. And they only did so because they believed the lies he fed them about the election. And that's a very straight narrative that very clear cut, easy to understand, easily digestible idea that maybe Funny Willis can't get at. And maybe so, so to me, like that's the one thing Jack Smith can do that Funny Willis perhaps cannot. Mm. And as these move forward, one of them might be on camera. That's the one in Georgia. Let's talk about that in just a moment. Quick break here on Inside the Hive. By the way, send us your feedback anytime. Email me at bstelter at gmail.com. Let us know who you want to hear from on future episodes, what you want to hear about. We love the feedback, and we'll be back in just a moment. Hey, John Favreau here. There's no shortage of political takes in 2024, but quantity doesn't cut it. We need a better conversation about the latest biggest election of our lives. On Pod Save America, me and my co-host cut through the noise to help you figure out what matters and how you can help. Every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday, Pod Save America is breaking down the political news that makes us laugh, cry, and snap our laptops in half. Expensive year for laptops. Make sure to check out new episodes of Pod Save America on your favorite podcast platform or our YouTube channel now. 
we're back here on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. I'm Brian Selter speaking with Anna Bauer and Anthony Michael Christ, both of whom are experts in this new Fulton County indictment of Donald Trump. You're both in Georgia. You've been at the courthouse this week covering this case. So let's talk about kind of the mechanics of how this is going to work. Uh, there, there are, you know, these, com- I don't know, is the right, should I use the word competing indictments, Anthony? Are these indictments competing uh, or no, they're just overlapping? <laughs> I, mean, I think the best way to describe them is interconnected. Interconnected. Okay. So let's talk about the timing of them. I think, you know, what people want to know is, will any of these trials actually happen before Election Day 2024? What's our best sense of that, Anna? So I, I will start by stating the obvious, which is that Donald Trump's favorite legal strategy has always been delay. So I think that while it's possible that with the federal case, Jack Smith's case, it, it seems that Judge Chutkin has been very willing to kind of move quickly on things. However, even small delays are going to add up. There is a pile of discovery of evidence that has to happen in that case. And so I I would be a little bit surprised if we see that case actually happen before the 2024 election. You know, it's also competing with the Mar-a-Lago case and the New York case. And, And so there's just a lot of factors in play there. But in terms of the Fulton County case, let's talk about that and the timing. I will be very surprised if it goes to trial before the 2024 election. RICO cases in Georgia generally take a very long time to go to trial because they are so sprawling. That is especially true in Fulton County. You Mm. know, there have been other cases that are very similarly large as this one is, and it has taken years to go to trial. Even jury selection has taken more than six months in some of those cases. So, How is that possible? How is that possible? You know, it just, I, I think that it's really hard to find uh, a jury that can serve for as long as this trial is expected to take oh, because there's, you know, 19 co-defendants and the trial would likely take eight months to do. I don't really know exactly why it is so much less efficient than it is typically in the federal system, but that's just how it is in state court in Georgia. So mm. um, my view is just that it's going to take a long time and it and it likely will not be before the 2024 election. And that's partly because of, of RICO. Anthony, can you, I'm not going to pretend like I understand exactly what this means. Can you explain it to us, Anthony, you know, define RICO for us, why the laws are so permissive in, in Georgia for prosecuting these cases? Well, I have a colleague in the Legal Academy who who likes to describe the Georgia RICO uh, statute as being a just a broader conspiracy statute. And I think there's some truth to that. And essentially, you know, not to get too in the weeds in it, but the best way I, I like to think about it is very oftentimes, you know, we think of conspiracies as two people sitting down, having a drink, and they say, let's commit this crime. And they agree to it. And then somebody does something concrete in furtherance of that, right? So let's rob a bank. Okay. And then someone goes out and buys gloves, right? We have a conspiracy, easy to show, an express agreement. But the way in which crime works doesn't necessarily follow that neat pattern. Hmm. And so sometimes you have people who are winking and nodding and directing others and people who know that they're all working towards an unlawful goal as like different cogs in a machine. They Hmm. know they're part of the machine. They're good with being part of the machine, but they're not really communicating with each other necessarily. But essentially, right, that's akin to what 
Fannie Willis is alleging happened in the 2020 election, right? Where you had different people in different silos who were working very hard to keep Donald Trump in power. And they all knew they were working to keep Donald Trump in power, but they didn't really necessarily expressly agree that that's what they were going to do and it was and that they were going to engage in that criminal conduct. So it's a very prosecutor-friendly tool. Mm. It's also, I think, notable, a tool that is ripe for abuse. Folks who are interested in keeping the footprint of the criminal justice system small and who are very much into the kind of progressive prosecutor movement might very well be skeptical of RICO being used in the way that it gets used in Fulton County. Um, That said, the election meddling, the election conspiracy does seem to be the kind of activity that's ripe for RICO. We should also note, Anna, it's more than a little bit ironic that Rudy Giuliani, who, you know, was known where I'm sitting here in New York, you know, for using RICO, for popularizing uh, RICO charges in New York as a prosecutor, is now facing them himself. I mean, it is very ironic. And I think that there's a lot of irony with with all of this, though, right? In that I think that it's really interesting that someone like Jeff Clark, who was a member of the Department of Justice, which is supposed to enforce the laws of of the United States, and and now he's being charged for breaking the law. Um, Many of these folks are attorneys themselves, and they are, again, by their oath as attorneys, supposed to uphold the law, and now they're they're being charged. Um, So, you know, there's just a lot of irony here. And now we'll see what their defenses are. Uh, We will uh, see many, if not all, plead not guilty and, and go from there. I wonder what it's like for both of you as as legal experts, as Georgians, to be watching like the pro-Trump media type reaction, to be hearing the, the you know, the kind of Twitter trolling reaction to this indictment. There's been a lot of that from the far right, from the fringe being like, they're indicting uh, Trump for encouraging people to watch OAN. They're, they're indicting Trump for p- making a phone call. Like, you know, there's there's been this, it, it seems like an ignorance on purpose, right? An, an attempt to distract from the reality of the indictment. And there's been a lot of, of, of nonsense coming from the pro-Trump media. Is it frustrating to you, Anthony, as someone who like actually cares about the law to see folks lying and distorting it? What, or do you just block that out? Well, it's hard to block that out because for <laughs> no, me— it's the, it's the former president is the one saying it. Yeah. Right. So, you know, I, I, I find the hardest thing about being an academic in this setting is I speak truth to power, or at least I try to, and I try to be intellectually honest. Um, and so it's very hard to, to engage with folks— who are just willfully ignorant of, you know, the reality. And it's hard to break through when media consumption and choices in media often dictate people's views because they don't get straight facts. And so that I find that very frustrating. At the same time, I also find it hard because I and I and this sounds very strange, but I think it's true. And I think it's something that, frankly, it's important for me to disclose again as an academic, but I feel like a victim in this, right? Because Full disclosure, I voted for Joe Biden in Georgia as a Georgian in 2020. Donald Trump wanted to violate my constitutional rights and throw out my vote and throw out the vote of two million plus Georgians, many of whom are family and friends of mine. That to me is just so deeply disturbing that people don't say that's, you know, there's some some justice needs to be done there. Mm. Um, And I think the other thing, too, is. Folks who are often or seem to be the most critical of, you know, the indictment against Donald Trump here in Fulton County, 
I, I could understand if they were coming at it from a, you know, kind of like intellectually honest place, right? And and, I, and the other thing I'll say about this, and then I'll, I'll get off my high horse, um, you know, academics, right? But I, you know, the other <laughs> thing that's really interesting about this is, you know, I've often thought about law and order being, right, the, the Richard Nixon law and order or the George Wallace law and order, right? The origins of it, which is, which was never really about law and order. It was really about who gets to to live above the law and who doesn't, right? Who has to live under the thumb of the law? And race has always been a huge part of that. I think that's important because race is also an incredibly important part of the big lie, which is why we are here, right? So much of what Donald Trump did was attack black voting power and black voting rights mm. in black centers of the United States, mm. places like Atlanta, where Black political power is very important and meaningful, right? Because there's the numbers there. The black middle class has thrived here, right? This is a city of great potential for all sorts of folks. And so in 2020, we had a multiracial coalition come together and defeat Donald Trump in the state of Georgia, which he almost could not believe that he could possibly lose Georgia, right? There was a fixation on Georgia. And I think that's part of the reason. But I, I think that there are bigger issues here that really speak to the heart of American life, American culture, American politics, American history. And we really would be served well if more people stopped in this moment and thought about that. Right. As opposed to Trump's trolls just saying they're taking away his right to free speech when it's so much more complex. Let me just fit in a quick break here. Uh, much more with our Georgia law experts in just a moment. If you've been enjoying this show, and we sure hope you have, we'd appreciate if you rate and review it on the podcast app of your choice. And while you're there, make sure to hit that follow button so you don't miss an episode of Inside the Hive. You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo. Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. And we are back here on Inside the Hive with two Georgia legal experts, Anna Bauer and Anthony Michael Kreiss. Uh, Anthony was just making a point uh, that Anna wanted to follow up on. Anna? Well, to me, one of the things that is so astonishing is that actually consuming the legal documents themselves, I think, is something that I've noticed no one in the Trump world seems to have done that I speak to. Um, so I, I, you know, as a reporter who's there around courthouses and, and I will, you know, part of my job is going around and talking to people who are there to protest or who are, you know, aligned with Trump. And, and so I talk to a lot of those folks and I ask them, you know, have you read the indictment? Have you read the allegations? And I have not heard a single one who is there outside the courthouse protesting who who has said yes. They always say, no, I, I don't need to or no, I don't want to. And, and so I find that really uh, kind of astonishing that people are, are making these bold statements about Trump's innocence 
um, without reading the allegations. Although, of course, everyone should be presumed, a defendant should be presumed innocent. But it's, I think, just in terms of people consuming kind of news about this, it it, it seems like it would be important to read the allegations, you know? <laughs> yes. And there was an NBC correspondent at the Iowa State Fair who was asking Trump voters for their reactions. And, and one of them said, you know, he, he said, why, why did Trump get indicted? And the answer was, because the Democrats don't like him. And then, then the, the voter said, it makes me want to vote for Trump more. And the reporter said, why? And the person said, because whoever the Democrats hate is who I like. And it it's so freaking frustrating that that is the state of our politics. It is. As opposed to actually reading the documents, mm-hmm. as you said, Anna. And what one caveat to that, though, is in Georgia, there is a, because, you know, we have we have some complicated politics here in terms of the Republican Party. Um, you know, and Anthony, I feel like maybe you have thoughts on this, but, but you know, I, I will just say there, there's very much a subset of the Republican Party here in Georgia who have taken this very seriously and who many of them have served as witnesses in the case. Um, so I, I, it is interesting because, in Georgia, the politics within the party are quite complicated. And so there is a group, I think, who have given it some thought. You're giving props to the governor, Brian Kemp, for telling the truth that the election was not stolen. Georgia's weird. I love Georgia, but we're weird. Um, you know, many other of the Republican Party establishment uh, establishments in, in different states, Florida, Alabama, South Carolina, right? Our neighbors, Tennessee, are deeply loyal to Donald Trump. Why Georgia has not been is something that I still haven't quite put my finger on Hmm. because we're not all that dissimilar from the surrounding states, although we have a greater degree of, you know, suburban voters who who might be affiliated with the Republican Party. But the, the leadership here from Brian Kemp, to former Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan, to Brad Raffensperger, Secretary of State, they have just not been in that Trumpist mold. They're definitely Mm. conservatives, right? So let's not confuse them for moderates, right? We're not talking about New England Republicans. They are conservatives. But they have stood up to Donald Trump in the moment in 2020, and they have continued to do so throughout the past few years. And Georgia voters, last polls I saw, it's been a while, but the last polls I saw for the Republican presidential primary are not Trump supporters. They're, they're not gung-ho about Trump. And, um, and I, I just wonder why. I, I don't have a good answer for that yet. But we're, we are built different. Hmm. And I think that really makes this dynamic also different because we have Republicans in office who will be witnesses in this trial. And who will testify truthfully and honestly and who won't be afraid to do so. Mm. Um, And I think that to a jury, particularly a jury that is certainly going to have, right, non-Biden supporters, non-liberals, right, people right of center, Republicans on it. I think that's really important for them to hear. Um, I think that's important for the nation to hear from these folks on the witness stand. That's perhaps the one reason why I hope that this really doesn't get removed to federal court. Is, is in large part because I think the American people deserve and need an opportunity to break through the noise and just hear the evidence straight up from Fonnie Willis for themselves, but also to be able to witness, right, the pushback and the defense from Donald Trump. Right. Uh, because that's also incredibly important. 
cameras in the courtroom. That's what makes Georgia different. Uh, that's what was so wild about Monday night on cable news, being able to see inside the court when the indictment was handed up. And uh, that's because in federal court, as some of you know who are listening, no cameras, totally prohibited. You know, I would like to think that Chief Justice Roberts will change that for the January 6th uh, uh, case against Trump, but I, I'm skeptical. So, you know, that all hinges on whether the Georgia case gets moved to the federal court system or not. Trump expected to want that, and we'll see what happens. Right. So we've already seen that one of the co-defendants, Mark Meadows, filed a notice to move his case to federal court. What I will say about what what happens when you remove a case to federal court, um, you know, first there's kind of a question of whether it will stay there. Uh, Meadows will kind of have to show that he was a federal officer at the time that this conduct occurred and that he was performing this conduct within the scope of his federal duties. Mm. Um, most legal scholars that I've talked to seem to think he has a pretty good chance of removing it to federal court. Mm. Um, but I think it's really important for people to understand a few things about removal because there's a lot of confusion right now about what it means. Mm. So if his case goes to federal court, all that it means is that the case will be tried in federal court before a federal judge under federal procedural rules. Mm. But the state charges will still be the same. These will still be state charges, which are not eligible for a federal pardon. And you will still have Fonnie Willis's team prosecuting the case. It just is the case that it'll be in the federal courthouse versus in the Fulton County Superior Courthouse. Mm. However, as you mentioned, Brian, one of the real consequences of this is that federal rules around media recording would apply. And in the Northern District of Georgia, they are extremely serious about, you know, no electronics. You can't bring your phone in. You you can't transmit from the proceedings. So it, it will be the case that we will have media in there, you know, who then will have to run out to report what happens. So we won't be getting things out to people in real time. So there's real, you know, real time access to information issues that that may come up if it's removed to federal court. So, mm. Anthony, we mentioned co-defendants here. What, you know, what's the likelihood that at least some of these co-defendants will flip and cooperate? I'm guessing kind of high. I think it's very high. Um, I, I think that's particularly true for people who aren't household names mm. and who don't have the kind of deep pockets to pay lawyers to defend them in this case for the very long term, right? And we are talking a very long term. So there's a loyalty question there. How do you, you know, how do these folks weigh their loyalty to Donald Trump and to the cause against their, their own personal liberty and their future lives? These are not Walt Nata people, right? Who are like in the documents case, who are living and breathing Donald Trump and whose every waking moment is next to Donald Trump and who are being paid by Donald Trump and whose <laughs> lawyers are being paid for by Donald Trump, right? That's not going to happen with all 19 of these people. That's very important. And and I think that, um, you know, the other thing that's essential here, too, is that there are co-defendants, right? That that this this is not the D.C. case where it's Donald Trump standing alone. There are 
people whose futures are in fact yoked to his. Um, and so I think that's, you know, there's a really good chance that, um, you know, that, that there will be people who turn into state's evidence and decide to cooperate because the risk uh, to their liberty is just too great in order to, mm. to resist and uh, stay loyal to Donald Trump. And just to add to that, one of the things that I'm interested to see here is how many of these co-conspirators Trump will pay legal fees for. You know, Mm. there's been reporting that he has paid millions of dollars through his PAC for the many uh, witnesses or co-conspirators in other cases. And, you know, I, I doubt that he's going to be paying some of the fees for these lesser known individuals. And those are exactly the people who, as Anthony pointed out, are maybe more willing to cooperate because they don't have the deep pockets. So I think that will be a factor in play here because we've seen when when folks do get truly independent legal counsel, as occurred in the Mar-a-Lago case with one of the witnesses, you know, that can make all the difference in terms of cooperation. Mm. We are really at the very beginning of this, and it's not going to be on an election timetable. That's, I think, important to keep in mind. As people think about primaries and elections, this is on a completely separate timetable. Anna, Anthony, thank you both so much. Thanks. Thanks. That was Lawfare's Fulton County correspondent, Anna Bauer, in conversation with Professor Anthony Michael Kreiss of Georgia State University's College of Law. And this episode was produced by Gianna Palmer. Our executive producer is Stephen Valentino. And we had engineering assistance from Gabe Caroga and mixing by Bob Mallory. I'm Brian Stelter. You can find me on Twitter or threads at Brian Stelter. And as I mentioned earlier, email anytime, bstelter at gmail.com with your feedback and ideas for future shows. We'll be back in your podcast feed and ears next week. And if you are watching this video... Either I'm dead or I'm in a very, very, very bad situation. She said, oh my God, I can hear gunshots. I can hear men outside. Where are they? What have they done to them? Are they dead? Are they not dead? There is one suspect, her father, the Sheikh. It's Madeline Barron from In the Dark. We've teamed up with our new colleague, Heidi Blake, at The New Yorker to try to answer a question about one of the richest men in the world, the ruler of Dubai. Why do the women in Sheikh Mohammed's family keep trying to run away? There's five policemen outside and two policewomen inside the house. So basically I'm a hostage. And he reminded me that Sheikh Mohammed can get me anywhere. Because you're a rich and powerful person, you can effectively break any law you want in our country and get away with it. The Runaway Princesses is available now. Follow In the Dark wherever you get your podcasts.